0: Welcome to Humanity Shines with Shelley Nagel. This podcast features people from all walks of life, their ups and downs, and what inspires them. Today, we have Erin Wushikoff joining us from New York City. She's a mother of six and educator. Hi, Erin. Hello. Thank you for joining us today. How are you doing?
1: Uh, I'm doing pretty well. It's been um, spring break uh, for teachers and students out here in New York City. So this last week, uh, I've been home with all the kids and I'm just gearing up to like get back to everyday life starting tomorrow yeah i know it's late in new york and i'm here in los
0: angeles i wanted to start at the beginning you were born in california
1: and go from there all right so i was born in uh susanville california um Mm -hmm. i was not there very long um My parents needed to move, and they went back to what was home for them, which was Missouri, Mm -hmm. or as uh, my grandma called it, Missouri, growing (laughs) up, and um, they, you know, we were there until around the time that I was five or six, and then we ended up moving out to Colorado, so... Mm -hmm. Um, while my family related kind of more strongly to Missouri, um, I, all my formative memories are being in Colorado. So I definitely consider myself a person who's from Colorado. Okay.
0: And you moved there with mom and dad, correct? To Colorado from Missouri?
1: Um, no, my father kind of uh, disappeared early in my life. Um, by the time I was about a year old, he wasn't around anymore. Oh, wow. Um, so I was basically raised by my mother and grandmother.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: And um, my mother and grandmother were definitely with me when I moved down to Colorado. And I actually grew up with my grandmother the whole time uh, that I was like going to school, going to middle school, high school, even college, all of that. So she was like a, a huge uh, formative person in my life. That's great.
0: You Were you raised well, near Boulder or what part of Colorado was it?
1: Um, we lived in a bunch of the outskirts of um, Denver. So places like Lakewood and Golden and Wheat Ridge, these are all little suburbs. And mm-hmm. um, it it was a little different than... Uh, my life in new york has been because uh in new york you get an apartment and you hold on to it for dear life because (laughs) oh my gosh it's so expensive to move here uh you have to like devote your entire life to finding a new apartment and um and i actually need to do that this summer and it's like honestly a horrifying thought but back (laughs) in colorado like at least when i was growing up they didn't run all these credit checks and there wasn't like a million people competing for the same apartment. And mm-hmm. so my parents moved, um, my mom and my grandma, that's what I mean when I say parents. Okay. They moved almost every year. And so every year I went to a different elementary school, wow. but they weren't big moves. They are just like one suburb to the next suburb because you could just kind of pick up and move easily. So if you weren't happy with your, apartment you could just go but the side effect of that was that I ended up going to all these different schools and people used to ask me if like I was in a military family it's like no it's just we were just always picking up and going like in contrast uh you know since my kids have been in school they've moved once once Mm -hmm. during the pandemic and like they've gone to the same like my oldest sons have gone to the same elementary school from K through four. Mm-hmm. So it's just been a very different life. But like mm-hmm. I said, in New York, you just, you want to set down those roots if at all possible. Absolutely. not so hard.
0: What was that experience like going from school to school for you in terms of making friends and just being able to adjust to new
1: schools? How was that for you? It's super tough. So I'm, uh neurodivergent. And um I don't really understand that well how to make friends with people, especially if there's a bunch of uh clicks mm-hmm. wherever I'm trying to settle. And there are definitely clicks in the adult world, just like there are in school. They don't mm-hmm. go away. Um like I remember I was at a job once and we were kind of like required to go to happy hour after work. Like it was just like expectation Mm -hmm. and uh all the women who worked there were sitting around talking about where they shopped for groceries Mm -hmm. and then they turned and asked me where i shopped for groceries i just i had no idea what to say they had like this whole little thing where they all lived on the upper west side and they went to certain shops and here i was I i was living in the bronx (laughs) <laughs> I just went to one of her corner store. I couldn't relate to their world at all. So I'm just yeah. sitting they dumbfounded. So I would be accused of being like aloof or weird because I just didn't know what to say. Elementary school was like that. Like, I didn't know any of these people. I didn't have bonds with these people. Mm-hmm. I mean, and I almost didn't want to make bonds because mm-hmm. it's like, well, why am I going to bother to get to know you mm-hmm. if I'm just going to change schools? Right you know, the next Mm -hmm. year, like how much effort am I going to put into it? And um, Mm -hmm. it hit its worst peak when I was in high school. When I was in high school, by choice, Mm -hmm. I changed. um, I changed high schools. I, you know, again, this is a place where New York and Colorado are so different. Yeah. You know, in New York, there's like all this competition to go to high schools, and you can end up going to high school in any borough. And but in Colorado, Where you lived was where you went to high school. But again, we moved while I was in high school. Mm -hmm. So I took the opportunity when I got mad at my former school to switch to a new school. Mm. And I I was in the middle of my junior year. Mm -hmm. I wanted to work. And honestly, it it was good for me because they had a block schedule there. And like Mm -hmm. I became a straight A student just because of the block schedule. Just not having class every single day and homework in every single class every day. Mm -hmm. Just that change like totally liberated me to like finally perform as I could. Mm -hmm. But socially, I didn't even try. I sat in the library. I would not enter the cafeteria. There was no way I was going to try and sit down at a table of strangers and eat. Not a chance. I had no idea what to say. So I wasn't going to do it. Mm -hmm. I sat in the library and I read books and I didn't even try to engage with people. And it really remained that way until i went to college like i just would not try to make friends i would not try to engage it was way too complicated
0: were you bullied at all
1: during your elementary high school junior high school absolutely like one of the things i remember like fourth grade really stands out to me Mm -hmm. um and it's funny because my own oldest sons are in fourth grade now and they're starting to see the first signs of bullying and it's not the worst bullying that you're ever going to encounter but it's just like the start of where things make a turn and they get really bad in middle school Mm -hmm. so like there was you know for one thing i didn't know how to make friends so like i saw this girl i wanted to be her friend i just followed her everywhere Mm -hmm. that that seems really creepy now but i just didn't know what else to do yeah and all the girls were involved in this club and this older girl called it her army i kid (laughs) you not her army (laughs) And so one day I went up and I asked, could I join the army? (laughs) I was told, no, no, (laughs) no, I could not join the army. Uh, I could not tie my shoes until I was ah, in fourth grade, like right before fourth grade, I think was when that kicked in. So in third grade, I was still wearing shoes with Velcro because that's what I could do. Mm -hmm. And there were girls who like unmercifully teased me for that. Mm -hmm. Like girls can be so cruel. And it just kept progressing. When I went to middle school, I remember the first boy I had a crush on. Mm -hmm. uh, You know, we had one of those stupid dances. And Mm -hmm. uh, I asked, you know, if I could dance with him at this dance. And he told me, fuck no. Okay, like a a no would have sufficed. I didn't need fuck no. And then on top of that, like as if that wasn't bad enough, Mm -hmm. he felt the need to like, persistently torture me the rest of the year after you asked so, yes there was another student with the same first name that is just david right mm-hmm. so this david started a rumor that i liked the other david mm-hmm. and like i was like teased nonstop about it Aww. it was ridiculous and uh i had a girl who lived in the same apartment complex i did mm-hmm. and she um she took things to the extreme. She mm-hmm. gave me a dog bone for Christmas one year mm-hmm. on, on the school bus in front of everyone. And one day when I was walking to my apartment, she actually picked up a metal doorknob and she hurled it at my head. And I mean, this thing missed my head by like an inch. If it had made contact with me, I probably would have been knocked out. It hit a fence behind me. Oh, my God. Now, for that. Obviously, I became scared after that. So I started walking. Mm -hmm. Um, I started walking like a mile or a mile and a half. It was like a long distance uh, from a whole nother bus stop, a whole nother bus just to Mm -hmm. try and avoid these scenarios. I didn't want to get into a fight. You know, I didn't want to do any of that. I just wanted to desperately be left alone. As a child, did you know that you're a neurodivergent? No, definitely not. Um. So one of the things that happens is sometimes when you have children and I have six Mm -hmm. and four of them are now diagnosed neurodivergent themselves, and probably soon it will be five. When that happens, suddenly, and especially because my children don't all have the same father, you're like, maybe there's something going on with me, Mm -hmm. but we're so much better at thinking about what might be going on with children and what they might need, especially uh, when the children are verbal, are "quote unquote" smart, which used to be a real barrier. Um, in the past, you know, it started off in first grade that uh, my mother was told by the first grade teacher that I was retarded. I needed to go into special education. 1980s right yes and yeah in the 1980s the they used that word mm-hmm. which is why it's a forbidden word in my classrooms mm-hmm. and uh yeah they they basically said I could never learn you know that that creates a huge core wound like I'm about to graduate from the Harvard Extension School with my second master's degree mm-hmm. and heck yeah girl. I know uh, you know I know the main reason though I'm going isn't because I think Harvard is the best school. Actually, I think it's kind of elitist and it doesn't um, support the right kinds of people. I think it gives opportunities to people who already had the most opportunities in the first place Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. instead of really granting opportunities to people who need it. Or if it does, it charges them this huge premium for it. But the reason I'm going there is because I'm still trying to prove that I'm not retarded, you know? Like Mm -hmm. that's how much it, impact students when you're a teacher, and you bully your students, and you don't believe in them. And that was mm-hmm. a big reason I went into education, because I know that, like, it's so ridiculously harmful to mm-hmm. do that what happens is you get called lazy. Mm-hmm. So you didn't get, um, you didn't get classified as neurodivergent. They either said you couldn't learn, or later, if they saw you could learn, well, you were just lazy, or you didn't live up to your potential. So there were no there was no concept of neurodivergence. It was just that you had uh, character flaws mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and that's what it was. Well I also think too in terms of education they've
0: had this like one way of learning standard if you don't fit into this box then you're not you know smart or capable and there's so many brilliant people who do not fit into one box
1: yeah and i think people you know we talk a lot more about neurodivergence now and it's not even just that like um in my case i imagine in first grade one of the things they were also picking up on was the fact that uh i was pretty traumatized around the time i was six i was molested by um my mom's boyfriend's teenage son and uh, um so sorry you know there were other things that happened in that situation, but basically I didn't tell anyone. I didn't have any language to tell anyone. So I'm sure that I was very withdrawn. Like Mm -hmm. I'm already like someone who doesn't really know how to make small talk, but now as a more recovered adult, I can at least like, you know, have a normal conversation back and forth. But at that time, I imagine I was probably really withdrawn and Mm -hmm. in myself and so I remember like uh, they said I couldn't read in first grade, which by the way, like if you can read or not read in first grade doesn't make or break you. But Absolutely. let's let's assume that was true. You know, I remember seeing the word bumblebee, seeing the bee and knowing that they were correlated. Um, so I know I could read, but I'm guessing I somehow had trouble expressing that. And yeah, they just didn't have. A concept like you said like it's well we have these benchmarks we have these standards we have these assessments of it and that's the only way that we can look at it and that's it and it's yeah it's very harmful
0: Mm -hmm. and that's part of the reason you went into education right it's the main reason i went into
1: education you know because um i i wanted to help students who uh were kind of given up on that people didn't believe in I wanted to help inspire them and make them feel like you know someone does believe in you Mm -hmm. and uh you know later you know I started tutoring at like um an agency in Chinatown and I kind of developed a love of like teaching just to teach for the subject like wow I really like breaking down literature explaining it or talking about it but that was definitely secondary down the road my my first reason for entering teaching mm-hmm. and uh, what brought me back to it after the pandemic because right now a lot of teachers are quitting mm-hmm. you know it's it's incredibly difficult but was just I know that there are students out there who are struggling mm-hmm. and uh, I know that if like their self-esteem is devastated and you know they really might not quote-unquote live up to their potential, but it's not because of um some flaw within them. It's because of the flaws within the system.
0: We met at Naropa. If it all is. And then we ended up connecting back in New York. So what brought you out to New York from Colorado?
1: Oh my gosh. Um <laughs> I this is funny because this also happened when I was at Naropa, but when I was at Naropa, um since I was in middle school, I was so in love with the actor Alan Rickman. Now he's passed on, bless his heart, but uh, he was playing in a show on Broadway uh-huh. and I would do anything at that time. I, I was like in my last year at Naropa to go see Alan Rickman. So uh-huh. I literally did anything. I bought um, a bus ticket don't go from Colorado to New York on a bus, but I did. And uh, I went out to New York. And that was my first time being in New York. I saw Alan Rickman. I don't know if I fell in love with New York because of Alan Rickman, (laughs) or because it was New York. But I just kept thinking about like my life and my time there. And I wanted to go back. Now, I think in retrospect thinking about what makes me love New York is obviously Alan Rickman's not here now and I don't hang out at the Broadway theaters all the time (laughs) but like I think it was like the diversity of people like growing up in Colorado there's not a lot of diversity even at a place like Naropa there's not a lot of diversity right Uh, in in New York there is you know in New York um on the subway on the street everywhere I go I'm meeting different people I know people uh, who have come here from so many different nations Mm -hmm. and I've gotten so many perspectives and I wanted to have something like that in Colorado, but I could only get it like secondhand through a book Mm -hmm. or a movie. It's not the same as really interacting and sharing with people. Right. Mm -hmm. And like, there's almost nothing like New York where there's just so many cross sections of people in one place and there's a lot of energy. It's not what it used to be and I know everyone says that but Uh it's just everyone says that but it's because like our our independent stores our independent record shops bookstores all these things are getting replaced and there's banks everywhere and there's luxury condos I know and um but there's still despite that like this spirit and this sense of like all this history Mm -hmm. all this Energy that happened mm-hmm. in this place. and even when they try to build this like nonsense on top of it, you can't fully stifle that, yeah, from this place and i I live in Brooklyn and um I like Brooklyn um better, yeah, I love
0: Brooklyn Manhattan
1: because Brooklyn still has some of its character mm-hmm. um, there are communities that are uh, like whole mm-hmm. uh, ethnic communities, like my oldest son's there, um part Russian. Their father is um fully Russian, grew up there. Mm-hmm. And uh, you know, like you can go to Brighton Beach, you can immerse yourself in that culture.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Um so yeah, these are these are the kinds of things I love about the city that help me to stay here even when it gets Really hard, sometimes. Financially,
0: yeah. yes. Financially, it's rough.
1: Yeah, financially, first and foremost, it's so hard. And then, you know, there are certain problems in New York that never get solved, like homelessness. Mm-hmm. Uh, homeless people having to live on trains, everyone's complaining about it, but it never gets resolved. It's the same way with the housing crisis and the housing crisis and homelessness obviously go together, Mm -hmm. but like every single politician is going to do something about the housing crisis. And then what they do is like, they have these lotteries and you can apply to the lottery to get an affordable apartment, but actually they're not that affordable and you have to apply with a ton of other people and you have to fit all these specific brackets of number of people and income. And by the way, I can't even apply to most of those Mm -hmm. because the number of kids I have and myself are actually too much. I mean, this is actually another problem I have right now when I'm trying to get a new apartment, even if I have a job and income, which I do, Mm -hmm. it's like who's living in the apartment? oh, wait, what? I don't want to hear that. So, um, yeah. yeah, it's just, it's tough. Yeah. And you're also a single mom of six. So I am, I am. Um, there was one repeating factor that happened in my life a couple times. Uh, you know, I had a surprise baby when I had my third child, I was not expecting to have that child. Uh-huh. And, uh, One of the things that the father said to me was uh his father was, Well, you know, who's gonna accept you when you have three kids? And I was like, Well, you know what, doesn't matter. I'm I'm just gonna go out because at that time like things weren't healthy. Thankfully they've they've improved a ton. Mm -hmm. But like I had the same pattern repeat where I had a set of triplets. I went from three kids to six kids, which is unbelievable right. having twins
0: and then having right, triplets. right. like how and does if, that happen
1: when your kids double in number overnight from three to six that's just really intense But well, I have like literally the same situation with their father where he looked at me and he's like well you know what are you gonna do you have six kids who's gonna have you and first off if if you're either the man or the woman in a situation like that saying that to another person realize they don't they don't need anyone to have them mm-hmm. like you can find everything you need in yourself i don't need like if i never have another partner i'm i'm going to be fine financially right. it's very difficult because of the nature of american society but aside from that i'm better off healthy and alone even with six kids than in some toxic situation absolutely (laughs) so i just when i heard those words repeat it was Mm -hmm. like uh you know i i know this situation has to end hopefully like the other situation eventually it will get um better like it will get you know less toxic you know you always want to be able to co-parent in a healthy way but um, yeah, to hear those words instantly tells me like, well, this person's in absolutely the wrong frame of mind. Like there's nothing to work out here right now because that mindset is just mm-hmm. absolutely it's, it's limiting. The, the too. Wrong, yeah, it's the wrong mindset. Like it's mm-hmm. it's not true and it's not the right way to be thinking like, oh, I have to hold on to this relationship this person like i have to like Mm -hmm. hold it so tightly no matter what no i don't yeah and so despite everything i was like i don't have to hold on to it i'm going to let it go and assume Mm -hmm. that the universe is going to like show me a way Mm -hmm. to take care of you know these kids and i and like you know We've been doing it, but yeah, I I would say that to anyone out there who has kids, because I've seen this, like Mm -hmm. when when you're on Facebook groups and such, you see it where uh, people are afraid to leave, Mm -hmm. especially if they've been home caregiving right? and they like lost years off their profession or they've lost income because they were at home caring Mm -hmm. for children. And as the number of children increase, it's like, oh my gosh. I can't leave because I just don't have the economic resources to leave. But yeah, it's it's just a mindset you have to set aside and just. Yeah. And you're doing it.
0: Yeah. I'm raising my kids and I'm not going to be in a toxic relationship that hurts me or my children. So that's, I respect that and you're, you're making it happen. Erin, I would love to hear about what you're going to school for, for your master's and what that process has been like going to Harvard for you.
1: Yes. So I'm getting a degree from a master's degree from Harvard Extension. I have one master's degree from a while ago from Prescott College in uh, counseling psychology. Mm -hmm. And uh, I'm looking to exit uh, education for a bit. For me, it's, um, a little too much marrying of my home and my work life. Mm -hmm. I have several neurodivergent kids and then I'm working with a neurodivergent population teaching, but it's just like too much of the same thing all at Mm -hmm. the same time. So Mm -hmm. I started to get a, um, a museum studies degree through the Harvard extension school, which, um, Mm -hmm. I I could have a lot of things to say about the Harvard Extension School. But uh, basically, in part, I, I went there for the reasons I said before and to also just jumpstart my career because unfortunately, that name just has value and I'm a little older and I just wanted to get started. But the one thing I was like, well, I'm not going to do anything to do with autism or ADHD. I'm just I'm not going to do that. But lo and behold, here I am doing my capstone and what interested me was going out and talking to museums about the programs that they have for people who are neurodivergent. So even though so I started going cool. to do that, of course, that's what I'm doing. Uh, I love that the, reason. the reason I was inspired to do that is, um, you know, there's, um, a great Instagram account called change the museum and uh, people talk about their experiences on there, but there's this huge movement in museums to make them more inclusive and mm-hmm. accepting uh, because for a long time, museums have excluded large parts of their community. So accessibility mm-hmm. is part of that. Um, but I find and what you'll find if you look at the change the museum account is that, a lot of times these things are talk. So they want to talk about um, having equality but or equity. But then you know what the top people make versus what the people who work at the front or the people who work at security make. It doesn't even out. And it's often the people of color who work at the museums who are uh, getting short-shifted in uh, promotional opportunities and pay. So there's all these ideas they spend a lot of time having meetings about ideas Mm -hmm. but they don't necessarily carry over into programming that helps people Mm -hmm. and uh so i wanted to see like how many people have a vision Mm -hmm. for having more accessibility and what are they doing to act on that so i wrote a survey i've sent it out i'm trying to get results and i'm trying to create like a best practices guide which also would heavily feature things like uh, training and partnering with community organizations who can just help you uh, understand better what you want to implement, but really kind of pushing the idea of, you know, it's time for all of these things to get out of the idea of talking about it. We've all talked about it a lot and we all kind of agree that these are good things, but it's hard to move from talking about it to action right and that really you know what my capstone and a couple other capstones are kind of geared around is like what what does it take what's the action plan to actually have change and then the other thing I would like to address is like the museums that do have programs um like here in New York there are great programs at the Intrepid Museum and uh there's some at the Transit Museum, and I'm not uh, downgrading those programs at all. Mm-hmm. But there are also programs at places that are stereotypically associated uh, with people, especially boys on the spectrum. And mm-hmm. listen, I have two boys who are obsessed with the subway. So <laughs> I'm not saying it never happens, but uh, it's also self-limiting, like, mm-hmm. I wonder if other museums are considering whether if they're automatically excluding themselves from, you know, opening up programs just because they think, well, this isn't what neurodivergent people are interested in. This isn't what autistic people are interested in. But how do you know? Unless you go and engage with those stakeholders and your community, how do you really Absolutely. know Like, true? Like, so I'm, I'm really curious, you know, Mm-hmm. when they create accessibility programs and they choose to engage with certain groups or not like what's the driving thought behind that mm-hmm. so and
0: it's such a wide spectrum and you
1: can't put one person you know who's neurodivergent in one box complicates it is a, a lot of the studies that have been done out there are focused on children well that's automatically complicated because mm-hmm. when you're talking about children and you're trying to get children in the door and this is a universal problem um, in the autism community is that there's such a heavy focus on children. Not that that's, you know, not that it's bad to help children, but the huge focus there and the adults tend to get ignored. And if you want to talk about children, you desperately need to talk about parents because what um, a child might need to feel comfortable in a setting and what their parents need. And if you don't make the parents feel comfortable, that's a whole nother ball game. Mm-hmm. I cannot tell you the hate that I get as a parent. It is exhausting because when I go out, my children do not just sit there nicely and do whatever it is society thinks they're supposed to do, like mm-hmm. sit there and make polite conversation at the dinner table at the restaurant. And not need like a tablet or something to distract them. You know, one of the things you realize when you have as many children as I do is that the notion of like great parenting is kind of a joke. Like I actually kind of almost, it hits me the wrong way now when people come up and tell me, oh, my children are so well-behaved. I'm such a good mom. Oh, That's usually not what's up. What's up is that My kids were having a great moment or, you know, some of my kids are naturally more inclined to behave in the way that society thinks they ought to. Mm -hmm. But when you have different kids with different personalities and you're raising them, you're the person raising them all the same way. You realize like you don't have all this control, right? You know, like good parenting is is so much a myth and so when I see things online and they someone claims to be a parenting expert it's like parenting expert of what kind of child exactly <laughs> you know, yeah. because you know yeah it's it's true that probably you know for most engaged healthy parents mm-hmm. they probably are the best expert on parenting mm-hmm. their particular child and right you know we need to honor that and just put a whole lot less shame on parents but The reality is we shame parents of uh, children who are neurodivergent all the time. Oh, my gosh, that child's too loud. That child's too energetic. That child is, you know, so why don't I stare at you? And if I stare at you long enough and give you dirty looks, then your child just won't be neurodivergent anymore. And that's just not how it works. But what it will do is keep a lot of parents and kids at home. And I've always fought back despite people's looks. Mm -hmm. I, and you know, this is where I've become a real New Yorker. (laughs) I will go out anyway. I will go out with my kids anyway. And I, you're always doing cool stuff with your kids. Like I I always see pictures. I, I will go anyway. And, uh, I deal with the rudeness. I've had people on the subway counting my kids heads. You know, it's so rude, but, uh, You know, I let a lot of things slide, but if you Mm -hmm. come say something to my kids and it's rude. Yeah. Um, oh my goodness. But there are are good people out there there. I I see as a parent, I'm always in my defensive mode. I'm always like ready to jump on someone. Mm -hmm. And sometimes my kids are upset. And actually there's someone who just wants to come distract my child. They actually want to help. Help. They want to help. my child. They want to be kind, uh, right. like, and it's so rare, and it's so sweet. It could like almost bring you to tears in that moment. Like, oh, Aww. that reminder. Like, some people are good. They want yes. to help. They, mm-hmm. yeah. Because sometimes you forget. You get so used to the negative that you're mm-hmm. just like in warrior mode all the time. And it's like, okay, sometimes I can relax. I don't have to be in warrior mode twenty-four-seven. Right. Well, Erin, you've
0: been such a resilient person ever since I've known you and just your pursuit for education. And I know that you've had a lot of bumps in the road where you haven't had the easiest life. What keeps you motivated and inspired to keep going and to keep learning? Because you're always learning new things and you're always you just you
1: have a zest for life. What inspires all of that? At this point, my children, Mm -hmm. uh, I often say that I credit my oldest sons with, uh, my, my very life, giving me life, uh, Mm -hmm. right before they were born, I was in an abusive relationship, physically abusive. Mm -hmm. My grandmother who was like everything to me, uh, her oral cancer came back again and it was clear she was not going to make it this time. And, uh, I was drinking a lot back then. Uh, my job was very difficult. I was getting like choked at work. I would come home with bruises every day. Mm-hmm. Like I was taking pictures of this stuff. It was crazy. It was too much. And uh, I just didn't have much will to live, mm-hmm. honestly. Just very suicidal at that time. I was suicidal at that time. Mm-hmm. And um, you know, I have such mixed feelings towards antidepressants because of this. Because the antidepressant would take the edge off enough to keep going. But not nearly enough to resolve the problem because Mm -hmm. the only thing that was going to cure that particular depression was getting out of that situation. Because yes, when someone's abusing you, depression is a natural reaction. Right. Uh, And even though you can't do anything about losing someone you love, you know, Mm -hmm. this other situation. Yes. Mm -hmm. Yeah. What happened was, uh, I I became pregnant with my twins. I had, um, I'd always had this plan. It's so funny. Right before I came to New York, I went to the Florida Keys, mm-hmm. and I was down there for a week. I went to this place called Island Dolphin Care, and I just wanted to be there. So I put in an application to like be an intern there for free, but it took a year for a placement to come up. So in the meantime, I'm in New York. I'm going along. Uh, life is terrible, right? It's really bad. And it comes up, I was supposed to go to Florida. So I decide, you know what? I'm going to Florida. Uh, and when I get to Florida, to the Florida Keys, and I'm doing this month, like, it occurs to me that I'm pregnant. I, I go to Miami to get an ultrasound. And sure enough, there's two heartbeats in there. And in that moment, both being away from my abuser right, and uh, realizing that I had this like, potential amazing life developing within me it just gave me the strength to do everything yeah to quit drinking completely at that time to uh you know break off that relationship forever yes. like that was yes and uh you know like they literally changed everything I was no longer suicidal even when my grandmother passed I was yeah I was not suicidal mm-hmm. and um You know, from that point on, as I've continued to have more kids, you would think like it would wear me down, but it's the opposite. It always builds me up. So when I had the triplets, um, it would seem like, oh, I have six kids. Now I'm done for. No, it made me want to go get another degree and like try and improve my professional situation in my life. They always inspire me to want to do more and they always inspire me to want to show them what I want to see in the world. So for example, like if you're miserable in your career for some reason, Mm -hmm. like if you're in a toxic workplace, because workplaces can be as toxic as any relationship. Right. Instead of just like being miserable, like, you know, I wanted to show my kids, like you can always re-educate yourself. You can always pursue another job. You shouldn't ever just give up at the place of miserable and say, you Mm -hmm. know what? I'm just going to stay here miserable, you know? So the fact that I have these kids, I, I'm always thinking about, well, what do I want to teach them? Like if yeah. I stay in a bad relationship, if I stay at a bad job and I don't try to make any changes, that's literally what I'm teaching them to do. And right? I don't want to do that. So they have been the biggest factor and people always think, Oh, it's so amazing. You do this when you have kids, but actually, it's much easier for me to do it with the kids because they're such a motivator. Yeah. I was just like, uh, I don't know what to do. I don't know what's going on. I'm just like floating around having experiences. I didn't have, you know, any driving force to help me like really figure it out. So. Aaron, thank you so much.
0: Ah, for thank you. Coming on today <laughs> and just being inspiring and sharing your story and being truthful and honest. The commence, I'm moving to the spot. Play my ass on the bench. But down there, the I the smoke